Hello everyone, it's that Dr Neil Buttery again. Welcome to episode 7 of my podcast, British Food A History Lent. It's the last episode today because it's the last Sunday of Lent. Next Sunday is Easter Sunday. The Lenten fast will be lifted. You'll have eaten a whole chocolate egg for breakfast and probably one for lunch. You'll be feeling a bit nauseous by the afternoon while simultaneously eyeing up that cream egg triple pack. Coming up in today's episode, Fig Sunday, Palm Sunday, Pax Cakes and a visit to a Hebridean sheep farm. Then, I round it all off by going full circle and meeting up with some friends of the show. The last Sunday of Lent is Palm Sunday and it's the beginning of Holy Week but today is also called Fig Sunday. The figs were dried, not fresh, and they were eaten as is or cooked up into a pudding. The famous figgy pudding of Old England. In Lancashire, a dish called fig soup was cooked up. It was a combination of figs, bread, ale and nutmeg, all simmered together to form a thick stew eaten hot. People would buy so many figs the week leading up to today that special fig fairs were held just to cope with demand. In many of the southern counties... Fig feasts were held in parks and commons so folks could eat figs, drink ale and toast each other's health. The privy doors the next day must have fallen off their hinges with overuse. Fig Sunday was very popular, but then suddenly stopped during the Second World War, presumably because of rationing and the lack of imported food. And that was that. It never started up again. I don't think anyone celebrates it now. It's odd how traditions that stretch back centuries can be forgotten just like that. It's so sad. If anybody celebrates it, or remembers anybody celebrating it, please get in touch and let me know. Last week I told you a little about Passiontide, the period of Lent that focuses on the Passion of Christ, the time between him coming out of the wilderness and his death and resurrection. This takes a week, but Passiontide always used to take two weeks. Everyone found this utterly confusing, so Passion Sunday was moved to today so it could be marked in real time. The final week of Jesus' life on earth is a fulcrum upon which the Christian religion rotates and it requires that the events really are taken literally. So here's what was going on in Judea circa 33 AD. Jesus enters Jerusalem having been in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights, fasting and getting generally mithered by Satan. He's on a donkey and everyone is very pleased to see him, and it's obviously a very important and happy occasion, as it's mentioned in all four Gospels of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke and John. That he is sat on a donkey is symbolic. It's humble and a symbol of peace, as opposed to a horse, which is a symbol of war, hierarchy and general cockiness. So everyone is cheering and waving their palm leaves around, which they then decide to put down and lay on the ground to make the last of the journey for both Jesus and Donkey a little more pleasant. For Christians centuries later in Western Europe, who were living fairly bleak lives, this must have been a time of real mixed emotion. Happy and jubilant for Jesus' safe return and his rapturous reception from the locals, yet sombre and sad, knowing what the week has in store for their saviour. Couple that with the fact that people are absolutely bloody starving after five and a half weeks of black fasting. Perhaps it was spurred on by the fact that this was the final push towards the glorious resurrection and a decent dinner. Today, many Christians go to church and receive little crosses made of dried palm leaves. 
Way back in medieval and Tudor times, there were very few palm leaves knocking about, so instead, willow and yew branches were used. The leaves were carried about the town in a procession along with any church relics, and taken to a neighbouring church to be blessed. Once the branches got blessed, they were paraded back to the mother church for the Palm Sunday service, where they were burned. The palm ashes, though, were not thrown away. They couldn't be. They were blessed. They were squirrelled away and kept to adorn people's faces on Ash Wednesday the next year. In the 16th century, to encourage more people to take part, ale and pax cakes were served as an incentive to get people into church and to create a feeling of community. Pax cakes are a bit mysterious and there are very few recipes for them. They go right back to the 16th century and were eaten with the Fig Sunday figs. Recipes are elusive. Some say they're like a cracker, others say like a shortbread biscuit. But the one I made was a very strange mixture indeed. And I thought I would give some out from my stall at Levensue Market to see what the shoppers and traders thought of them. Apologies for the sound quality in some parts, folks. The rain came a-falling down. And it made us all sound like we were underwater. Anyway, here's how I got on. We start off in my kitchen the day before the market. Well, here I am in my little kitchen. I'm getting ready for Levensue Market tomorrow. In amongst the things that I'm regularly making, things like bakewell tarts and pies and things, I'm making some Pax cakes, a delicious Palm Sunday treat. Pax just means peace, really, and it's a way of getting people into the church. People didn't care about any of that fasting nonsense by now, so the church really had to coax people in. So they had these Pax cakes. They also used to try and bring them in by offering beer too. I'd probably go for the latter one myself, but we'll see. Anyway, Pax cakes, they're a little bit mysterious. Recipes do seem to suggest that they're kind of like shortbread, but uh, I've been doing a bit of research and it turns out they're not. They're actually a little bit more like something like a, a macaron. So there's things like ground almonds in there, uh, lemon zest, egg white. It has a very medieval ingredient in it, and that's orange flower water, just unscrewing it. And it just needs a little touch of that, about half a teaspoon. You could use rose water too, that would be equally medieval. There we go. So in my bowl here, in my sturdy mixer, I've got 175 grams of ice and sugar, about 60 grams of ground almonds, a teaspoon of orange flower water or rose water, a little bit of lemon zest, and one egg white. And what I'm going to do now is use my mixer to get it all nice and kneaded and made into a nice thick paste. That's the idea anyway. I've never actually made any of this kind of stuff before, so we'll just have to see. Bloom whisk is on. Now we're using ice and sugar here. Don't put the whisk on full blast because you're just going to have a massive cloud of ice and sugar smoke, like Top of the Pops circa 1983. So go slow and then let's see what happens. Okay, so I'm just battling with this now. It's, hmm, it's certainly not something I can knead and mould. I have an emergency ingredient here in the form of a little bit of corn flour. Here we go. I'll give a, a little shake of that in. A couple of dessert spoonfuls, something like that. 
The reason I'm using this is that actually I use it later on to help roll it out. So it's going to have cornflour on it or in it anyway. So let's see. Here we have our dough. It's sticky, a little bit tacky, but I'm just kneading it here on a mixture of ice and sugar and corn flour. I've got a sort of strange green colour, but I think that's the, the weird lemons that I had. I bought lemons that weren't ripened in ethylene, so they hadn't actually gone yellow. They sort of stayed a green colour. I'm not going to cut it into circles. Instead, what I'm going to do to make it easier is I'm going to cut it into sort of fingers, sort of bourbon biscuit kind of sized fingers, I think. And there's just less wastage doing it that way too. It's usually a good idea to just kind of press it out with your fingertips to the dimensions at least and shape that you want it to be once it's fully rolled out, kind of. Now, I'm going to roll it out quite thinly, because it's, the idea is it's going to puff up. So I've liberally sprinkled my rolling pin with cornflour too, and now I'm going to roll it out. It's important, because it's, it's, it's very sticky, so it's very important that as you're rolling it around, you make sure you can move it still, and it's sticking just after one roll. I've got a trusty dough stick here. If it's really stuck, it might be better just to bring it all back together into a ball and start all over again. The great thing about this is that there's no flour in it, no gluten, so you can't really overmix it. What I'm going to do is fairly rustically cut this into some nice squares. It's behaving itself, that's good. It's a lot like a wafer recipe, this. I suppose it's going to be somewhere between a wafer, a meringue, and a macaron. Which is not bad. I quite like all of those things. If these were real Pax cakes, that was really serving up to people in the 17th century, I'd stamp them with little lamb shapes because we are all lambs of God, of course. I'm not gonna do that. Oh, they're very tricky to get off because they're so soft. Where's my scraper? In fact, it's much easier to cut these up with a dough scraper than a knife. Excellent, learning as we go. So these are gonna go in the oven now at 160 degrees and well, I don't know how long they're going to go in for, so I'm just going to keep a close eye on them. I reckon they're quite thin. It's a medium-ish oven, cool to medium oven, so I reckon we're looking at about 15 minutes. Here we are with a Pax cake. They're still warm, but I'm going to give one a go ahead of time. Let's have a see. Hmm, you're all right. They're very sweet. They're chewy, meringue, macaroony. They're all right. I'm not so convinced that this is the kind of thing that uh, Farm Sprouts or whoever would have been lured into the church with to eat. All that sugar and whatnot, almonds, they wouldn't have been cheap at the time. But uh, I don't know. 
It's obviously quite middle class church where people were doling these out. But they're alright. I can imagine these going really well with some kind of dessert with some whipped cream and some fruit or something like that. Hmm, yeah, very good. I'm impressed. Let's just see what the people of Levensu Market think about them tomorrow. It's finally time for me to go and sell my wares at Levensu Market. Levensu Market, by the way, is a lovely little CIC, community interest company in Levensu. All the profits go to helping small businesses and the community in various different ways. I've been trading there on and off for seven years. I was one of the founding directors of it, so it's something very close to my heart. The rain looks like it's going to happen any moment. I'm looking out my window. It's looking pretty blustery. I am sure the good people of Levenshoom will come out, whatever the weather, they usually do, so they can buy some of my pies and other traditional British bits and bobs. And hopefully they'll come and try some of these Pax cakes and tell me what they think. Yeah, so what I've made here are some uh, Pax cakes. It's a recipe from the mid-17th century. These Pax cakes were given out to people right at the end of Lent, Palm Sunday. So everyone's starving. They've had six weeks of bread and water. And it was a way of coaxing them back into church because everyone's a bit sick and tired of the whole affair by now, you see. So have a try. They are very sweet. They're very nice, crispy. I think they're quite nice. I quite like them. They've been nice with the coffee. Very nice with the coffee. But I've never heard of them. No. So they must have died out years ago, that tradition, because I've right. not heard of it. Yes. It's really hard to find recipes for them, because it's the kind of thing that wasn't written down, really. People just made them all the time. People knew how to make them. So it's been quite hard to find a recipe. But, uh, yeah. I mean, in different regions, would they vary it slightly as to, or is it pretty much standard that you do this? Well, it's a good question. This is the only recipe I can find, so I don't know. A lot of people describe them as shortcakes, so maybe something a bit more shortbready. Yeah. Wouldn't this be all over the country or to a region or something like that? All over the country, yeah, yeah. This and uh, a beer. A beer? To get people back into church. <laughs> so, We've given up on the coffee now, we've gone on to beer. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure which was the biggest carrot, the beer or the cake, but um, but imagine, I mean, if you imagine you've had six weeks of just having bread and water, I reckon it's, we're kind of joking about it now, but it's probably quite a big deal to have something like this after six weeks. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And quite, yeah, tasty, lovely, very sweet, nice. All right, Jeremy. How's it going? Neil. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Do you ever go to church? I don't really know. Well, during Lent, during right at the end of Lent, when everyone's really sick and tired of starving themselves, the church would try and coax people in by giving out these cakes, Pax cakes, right. peace cakes, really. Um, do you want to have a try? Take a whole one. It's not sure. No, I did because <laughs> it's got a sweetness, but then it's got like the crunchy outside, but then like a marshmallow type yeah, inside. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. Would it have coaxed you into church? <laughs> I'm not sure it would be, but I think it's very nice. What they also did was give out um, a beer at the same time. <laughs> I think the beer might have been I the think real... the mead might have been uh, a, a, a slightly more persuasive uh, instrument. But then when you look at back in the time, an yeah. attitude... And you've, got, you've had no sugar for six weeks. Yeah. You've had no meat for yeah. six weeks. Well, I can you see had, that. You've had bread and water. 
it's quite a carrot really isn't it to dangle well i mean it, it does that but i think again it, it's it's almost like it is a tradition of going and it's like looking forward to different things even when you look at seasonal food yes you look forward to different things coming yes. around so i can see where people would almost expect to, be able to go and have this for the cakes yes yeah, yeah. And and it's all been part of uh, part of that time. Yeah, and we all do it now. I mean, I'm not a Christian, but I do Christmas. I do Easter. I don't hide my head and forget. Well, I would even go as far as evening food. I mean, I look forward in spring. I know it's spring when I have my first rhubarb pasty. Sure. And then I look forward to new potatoes. Yeah. And then I look forward to uh, in autumn your brassicas and stuff like that. So I can imagine that it's one of those things that you'd associate with the time. And it would become part of the whole, whole sure. event. Yeah, yeah. No, that's. that's I'm not saying it ties in, but it'd almost be part. It's you'd recognise it as being that. Yeah, yeah. That time. Look at the purple yeah. there, are you? You yeah. know, like hot cross buns, like Christmas pudding. Yeah. And this is part of what what it would all be. I can imagine that. Yeah. Culturally important, if anything else. Yeah, people so like people just like tradition. I like tradition. And I think it just—it's it, almost—it's yeah, it is, and it's almost—it's almost an indicator. And yeah, I mean, I don't use a watch, I don't really use a calendar that much. Yeah. But all them little things, I say, spring is not looking on my calendar and seeing it's sort of like, um, what, the twenty-fourth of April. Mm -hmm. I just know the river past is ready. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and so, mean. so them, them's the sort of things when you look in the seasons, and and probably. I'm fortunate enough to still live in the country, so you see the year going, but sure. you don't judge it by the calendar, you look on what's around you. Yes, so, indeed. And I can see that being part of the whole year and, and one that you, you, you sort of associate with that time. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I do think it's interesting because you do, at first thing is a country thing, but then you get that softness coming through. Yeah, yeah. It's from 60, mid 17th century, this recipe's from. That's old. It is old, yeah. But then again, I'm not sure if they should be brought back. But some no, people, some people no. really like them. I don't like cheese. It's not cheese. It's, no cheese. <laughs> it's, it's not a cheese. sweet, sweet biscuit. But then the thing is, on really, you just look at the same things, and it's what we're interested in. Because what do you think? I know it was sheep's milk. Yeah. But Wensleydale goes back to the monasteries. Sure. Yeah, all the really old ones. And, and the way it comes round to being. A farmhouse cheese was on the oh, dissolution. Yeah. All these monks and everything was hiding in bloody farmhouses to pay the way. They taught, uh, taught their yeah. farmers' wives how to make bloody cheese. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and that was the way, and that's, that was a development. Sure, sure. Count how many, Stuart? I am. There's no eggs in them. No, it doesn't matter. All right. Well, I better I'll get back a, to my stall because being as trying to serve people. Yeah, but thanks very much for that, Jeremy. So it's four for three fifty on the stalls. A huge thanks to everyone at Levensview Market, especially to Jeremy of Winter Tarn there. Everyone was such good sports. If you fancy having a go at making Pax cakes yourself, the recipe is on my blog, BritishFoodHistory.com. Just click on the Lent podcast tab. There you can find links, photos and all sorts of other bump about things in this episode and indeed all the episodes in this series. One of the traditional foods eaten at Easter time is of course lamb. Lambs are a major symbol of Easter. They are born in the spring and they gamble about. 
and of course we're all lambs of God. So naturally, what do we do? Well, we kill and eat them, of course. One thing I've always wanted to do is to eat some primitive lamb, ancient sheep breeds that are more closely related to their wild ancestors than your regular sheep, and their welfare is more important than the amount of meat that they yield. But they're not commercially available, and ever since I started cooking British food, I've wanted to get hold of some, and I finally did after many years of searching. The reason I wanted to cook primitive lamb is that it appears in Jane Grigson's classic book, English Food, and I set myself the challenge of cooking every recipe from it, and I've been doing it and blogging about it since 2007, and all that are left are the tricky stragglers. My blog, by the way, is imaginatively called Neil Cooks Grigson. But it's not just to tick a recipe off like some kind of foodie train spotter, which I am. It's about meat and how we produce it. We eat too much of it, and the poor commercially bred animals that are there to feed us are there to feed us fast. Their welfare does not seem to be the highest priority. I wanted to see a farm where it was about the sheep having a good life, where they could maybe show off some of their more natural behaviours and be treated with more kindness. Well, after a bit of searching, I managed to find Helen Arthur, who has a farm in Cheshire. She keeps the ancient Hebridean breed, and I drove there to meet her and her glorious sheep. Right, um, these are some of my breeding ewes with the ram that's running with them. And uh, you can see from the ram in particular that it's a multi-horned breed, the Hebridean breed. Um, some of them, most of them have two horns, but some have four horns, they can have three horns, they can have five horns. Now, what are the odd, odd numbers? Um, you see odd numbers very uh, often, do you? No, you don't. Yeah. You don't. <laughs> <laughs> no. And so I think people tend to go for the more symmetrical ones. Yeah. My, me personally, I've got one across the road, a ram, a young ram, mm. and he's got like windswept horns out to the side that are oh, fused really? together in places. Um, and I won't keep him as a breeding animal. Okay. Is that because his horns are like that, or is he literally windswept? No, is no, it about no. The environment he, he, that he's no, in? no, no. Not at all. It's okay. just the way the way they've grown. Yeah, um, because there's some gene in a multi-horned breed um, that causes the horn buds to split. Oh, I see. And the only downside with four-horned or well, multi-horned sheep is that this same gene sometimes causes the top eyelid to split. Oh, really? Um, so you get a little notch mm -hmm. above, and if it's a bad notch, then they can't clean their eye properly right. and it's a bit of a health or can be a health yeah. issue so we try not to not to breed that into the flock the uh, you use those effect of a gene that's when genes can cause effects on more than one yeah trait yeah. isn't it yeah that's right if i remember rightly hello yeah and as you can see some of them are really black they've got a double fleece they've got a sort of outer it is the woolliest they are the woolliest sheep i've ever seen yeah they've got um, <laughs> like sort of balls. dreadlocks on the outside but then there's um sort of more dense wool underneath which keeps them really warm it goes quite far down like past their knees doesn't oh, yes, it yes it does they're really well protected yeah the Hebridean winters must have been no problem because you see these you can get that they can be mm. soaking wet shake like a dog right. and the water all just comes off and this sort of dense undercoat keeps them um, dry um, yeah so some of them stay black for most of their mm -hmm. lives but a lot of them um, go grey or go browny grey mm -hmm. which when you I'll show you when we get inside I've yeah. got some 
uh, wool that I've had spun from them. Oh, really? And oh, I've, had it, I've knitted one up into a jacket. Oh, but she's actually um, a triplet, one of a triplet. Mm. And I don't know whether that's why she's gone grey so early. Because um, she was, I took her from her mum. Well, I bottle fed her. I left her with her mum. Because normally these sheep, um, first time they have a single lamb. But then when they have their second lamb, they normally have twins. So they're a mm. prolific sheep. And okay. they're very milky. Um, the more improved sheep, the, yes. the white woolly jobs you see, uh-huh. they have been bred since the 1700s with Robert Bakewell to increase the carcass and the meat. There's those famous the wool paintings, aren't they, of the yeah, almost square, square sheep? sheep. Yeah, because yeah. for you know for centuries, um, sheep were bred for their wool, and yes. that's what you know we've got the wool sack. All the money in the Cotswold, yeah. everything the whole came English from wool. Economy depended on Absolutely. wool. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but then in the 1700s and with the Industrial Revolution, um, things started to change and they actually wanted to feed people in the cities yeah. meat. Priorities and, changed. Yeah, so yeah. they were going for big, heavy carcass sheep. Mm-hmm. Um, but same with cattle. Um, my cattle here are dual purpose, mm-hmm. um, so they're meat or milk. A lot of the cattle nowadays are either very fine-boned, thin, black-and-white dairy cattle, or great big beefy things. Um, And the great big beefy things, they tend to lose their milking qualities because the the genes have been pushed towards developing muscle. Yeah, you can't Uh, have your cake and eat it. Absolutely. Um, But these are very milky sheep, and they would... um, you know, they can easily rear a good lamb. I was talking about earlier about crossbreeding. They can rear a great big um, crossbred lamb mm-hmm. that will be bigger than them <laughs> easily. Right. Um, and they're also very good b- because they were um, not designed, but they developed to mm. survive um, harsh conditions in yeah. the Hebrides. They're basically. Part of the northern short-tailed group of sheep, which I think came across with the Vikings. Right. I mean, these sheep are lovely. They're they're very small and round, and cute. But you were saying that uh, they're not particularly good from the point of view of, I suppose, a commercial farm. They're all bred to be really big. So, why would you farm these sheep rather than the big, fluffy, white jobs that we see usually? I think you'll find that you can carry a lot more Hebrideans per acre of land than you can a more commercial sheep Mm -hmm. Um, and assuming you find a good market for your meat um, it's a niche product and you will get a better return on it Okay. Uh, but for most people they want um, their turnover to be quicker because these when they're um, sort of weaning time mm-hmm. they're not big enough as uh, lambs to go in the commercial market butchers want on the markets they want lambs that are 38 kilos i'm very interested in these older breeds especially with my evolutionary biology hat on as well as my chef's hat on and history hat on it's all come together with these sheep um what must be very satisfying is the fact that for me anyway i imagine is that these are less domesticated do you reckon they're a bit more wild in their behavior they are. They are. If you um, don't handle them much, they are very skittish. They mm-hmm. could jump these 
hurdles here which are three foot from a standstill no problem oh, really and go <laughs> <laughs> and they can run and they move really quickly yeah. compared with a an ordinary sheep because they've obviously been bred to be docile as well as big and meaty yes those commercial yeah. sheep yeah and um, whereas these primitive ones people that do dog trialing love to have these sheep because they move and they really test the dog and make right. it work yeah. whereas the uh, white sheep i'll call them heavy sheep because yeah. they have to have a lot more um pushing to get them to move the upside of sheep like this is because they are more um lively they they're just more hardy and they've got more will to live mm -hmm. and when you come to lambing my friend um, a couple of miles away she's got 100 odd sheep inside in pens should be watching them day and night to um, make sure they lamb all right because mm -hmm. um, they are bred to produce big lambs they're big sheep they've got a lot of weight on them anyway yeah. there's you know fat around the pelvic area and they're trying to produce lambs which have got great big heads big shoulders sure. they have difficulties these little things pop them out pop no them problem shelling peas, little sh i think hebridean sheep, sheep breeders are probably the worst people about lambing mm. because they don't have the experience of it because they just get on with it as well, a rule I mean, those city folk it's probably one of the few things that filter down in the news kind of lambing season has been a very stressful time of year for farmers uh, but you i guess well, you're, you're, always have that you're always concerned about it but on the whole they're very um easy lambers and yeah. they're very good mothers they're very protective okay because fewer things are done for them by you, I guess. Yeah. They, they've got to yeah. do it. And yeah. the lambs will be up and running within half an hour. They'll be, you know, up, suckling with their mums, ready to go. Gambling. <laughs> ready to run. <laughs> <laughs> um, does, does the fact that they are dashing about, being sheep, what, doing what sheep should do, does that filter down to the actual product at the end, the meat that you're getting at the end? Well, I think do it think? does, because um, unlike um, other sheep, these are quite goat-like in their eating habits. They love to browse. And so okay. if you put them in a field with lots of nice grass, they'll go straight to the hedge and they'll eat the leaves off the hedgerow. Mm -hmm. And um, they have got a fantastic reputation now for conservation grazing because they're excellent at clearing birch scrub, um, tufty, horrible old grass. Yeah. Um, so it's not quite invasive, but just difficult to get rid of. They'll just do yeah, it for you. Yeah, they'll just oh, eat it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And they've got black hooves. They're light. Mm -hmm. um, and they're light bone. That's another thing about them from the meat point of view. They're light bone, so you get quite a good killing out percentage from them. Yeah. Um, so you can put them on quite delicate... Um, land mm -hmm. and they won't cause a lot of damage because they are light and they've got hard feet so they don't get sure. terrible foot and coupling that with that kind of the selective browsing that they're doing all around there it's just all around good for the yeah habitat there was, there was, if there was some recent um studies done on um um feeding willow to sheep willow oh, yeah. leaves because apparently it's got tons of it might have been magnesium i can't remember the mm -hmm. mineral that was in there um, and they've realised how good that is for sheep. Yeah. Um, but, I mean, most sheep 
won't get uh, get mineral lick buckets, but these little yeah. fellows, because they will browse. Mm-hmm. My ewe lambs the other day were eating lichen off tree bark that was on the floor. <laughs> they <eat laughs> They'll anything. give anything a go. <laughs> <laughs> they love bramble shoots. That's one of their failures because the brambles then get caught in their wool, which is long, and they have a tendency to get stuck. So sometimes for conservation grazing, people will shear them Mm. as early as they can to get the fleece off them so they don't. Is there a downside to letting them browse? Back in the day when I did my degree, which was getting on 25 years ago, so I might be talking nonsense here, but people who farmed and allowed animals to browse, ruminant animals, cows, they would often eat a little bit too exploratively and eat things that were essentially poisonous. Do you have any problems with anything like that? I haven't that? had any problems. I have had a couple of bits of uh, white bryony that popped up in the orchard mm-hmm. um, and they are that is poisonous so I pulled it out. Right. Um, but I know there's woody nightshade and stuff like that around the hedges but no I've never had any problem right, with so that. Yeah. They know I, what they're doing. I think animals do on the whole. I don't know about you. I wouldn't trust them with you because that is poisonous. Oh, right. I thought you meant me. No, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> what are you saying? <laughs> I've recently... Uh. Um, I've got three very old sheep. That's another thing about these sheep. They have um, longevity in their favour. Yeah. I, my first lamb was born um, nearly 18 years ago one of them mm-hmm. and I've still got her oh, really? <laughs> and she's uh, down the road at my mum's with two more just keeping the grass down yeah. and there was a yew tree in there that's where, where I'm coming from uh-huh. and so I cut that down before yeah. I put them in there because yeah. I wouldn't risk them yeah. although they've eaten all sorts of other stuff bay leaves, euonymus lavender they're eating lots of stuff but it doesn't seem to be harming them good uh, I would like to say about them that um, they, I think, we're trying to prove this, that they do have more resistance to parasites than some other sheep, um, partic- you know, particularly worms, mm-hmm. because a lot of, um, obviously they pick up worms from the grass like all other grazing animals, and you have to use quite hefty chemicals to um, clear the worms from the system. Yeah. Whereas these, on the whole, I don't think have great problems. They're quite thrifty sheep. Mm. Maybe it's because of their choice of diet, I don't know. You must get into a negative cycle. You start using medicines and drugs and various chemicals to get rid of parasites. And And they develop resistance, it's well known. And so people try to avoid it. And a lot of people now do try to... um, develop pastures with different things in like chicory which is um, known to um, be an antelmintic and so people that have sheep and cattle now are developing more um, varied lays with different herbs in them is this all stuff people were doing hundreds of years ago yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got some wildflower hay meadows down there and that's what my sheep mostly eat in their hay yeah. through the winter and uh, I just think that's, um, you know, a valuable thing for them. And it's got to carry through to their flavour of the meat as yeah, well. Indeed. And it's just not sustainable. I mean, people want to eat meat with every meal, don't they? And they don't really care where the meat's come from. Or even know to ask or think about it, really. Especially no. in a supermarket where you've got cubes in a tray. Yeah. And cellophane over it. Yeah. You don't make the connection. No, quite. Yeah. And just and knowing that it's, you know, the sheep have come from you to a farmer's market 
or, or whatever. Yeah. And that's the provenance. That's it. Yeah. And Hasn't been to different countries. Me, There's no horse meat in there. Yeah. <laughs> or whatever. Yeah. And for me, the um, breeder, um, it's um, you know a great um, satisfaction to me to know that my meat is going to people that really appreciate it, yeah. rather than just taking these to the market, load them in the trailer, take them to the market, off you go, chaps. That's it, done, dusted. You don't know what happens to them after then. Whereas I take a few at a time to a small abattoir. Mm-hmm. I'm lucky in that we have some small abattoirs there left here. There can't be many left in the country. No, I think there's less than a hundred, something like sixty. Right. So um, if you were were a small holder or a fa- you know someone with a small farm and they had animals out to slaughter, you can't slaughter them yourself and sell them, can you? No. So if you go into these larger commercial ones, I guess you have to have a minimum flock size for it to be worth your while. It's just not possible. Um, no, you can take them, but um, I prefer a small slaughterhouse. Yeah. Their welfare standards are really high. Mm-hmm. And they tend to deal with smaller producers like us that do, um, uh, they call it home kill. You know, we have things killed for ourselves and then we sell the meat ourselves yeah. rather than a big abattoir mm-hmm. where they're taking loads of uh, animals in on contract to mm-hmm. meet the demands of the supermarkets. Yeah. And, and welfare uh, is coming, is second or third fiddle, isn't it? Mm. Um, this one with the orange tag is the only sheep that I've bought the rest are all home bred and she's from one of the very oldest flocks in the country that started um, to started off the Hebridean sheep society breed really Um, and they were because these were saved these sheep started off on the highlands and the blackface sheep and when crofters got kicked off the islands Mm. blackface sheep appeared there and these sheep only survived because people thought they were attractive because of their horns and their color and they were kept on parklands as um, show sheep yeah so every sheep's precious from a genetic point of view anyway in breeding yeah is an odd thing that people have trouble with and that's how can you like animals and then take them off to a slaughterhouse and eat them or sell them for other people to eat i don't have that problem but it's a bit of a issue for some people isn't it if i didn't um send them off for meat um i wouldn't keep them yeah a lot of people think that it's not possible to to think like that and i think it's important that people do get to see that that kind of thing is possible yeah to get that attachment back it'll make you respect the animals Absolutely. hopefully that's better, the whole thing is respect. better quality meat higher welfare eat it less often two three four times a year and a lot of people would balk at that idea you know commercial uh animal farming is so unsustainable that I can, you can see that this is a sustainable model for, you know if you want to put it in business terms yeah you can see it's sustainable in business terms and from the point of view of environmental terms as well yeah i think yes it takes two seconds just to to see that it's very obvious um it's such a beautiful place to be around as well isn't it you know calming and lovely for you and the animals i'm sure it's not like that all the time (laughs) (laughs) but i mean um, some of it if you're just not thinking about making loads of money the value to me of having um sheep that i really like and um, being able to um, live in this area and there's a nice community of um, people who have sheep 
particularly my Hebridean pals. Mm-hmm. Um, it makes um, life worth living. Excellent. I'm in Helen's beautiful dining room with a lovely roaring, crackling fire to the right of me. Some really nice furniture. I'm very jealous. <laughs> and we're sat here with Helen and Helen's friend Vicky, who's been farming sheep for 40 years. Yes. And Vicky. <laughs> and um, you're quite uh, an important person when it comes to Hebridean farming. Uh, you're part of the society. Could you tell people what your role is with the society? I am the registration secretary for the Hebridean Sheep Society, uh, which means I process all the pedigree information for all the sheep in the world, basically for all Hebridean sheep. And uh, I've been doing that for 25 years. Wow. And when you talk about that pedigree information, it's those, I suppose people might be familiar with buying a pedigree dog and you kind of get a, a family tree, essentially, yes. don't you? So you're yes, putting those kind correct. of things together. Uh, yes, I, I put out every pedigree registered animal has a yellow registration form, which goes back, which is a four generation one, so that people can check whether their ewes uh, are suitable to put with a, a certain ram in order to avoid inbreeding and that sort of thing. And um, every registered sheep has one of these forms. That must be really important. I'm trying to think back to my evolution days. What's it called? Uh, inbreeding depression, is it called? Where you get mm-hmm. animals that are kind of, in evolution terms, less fit. Yeah. You yes. know, so they're not as uh, virile or, mm. or as healthy. Yes. And that is something that you can see happening if well, you There's could mismatches. see it's a certain amount if it happened, yes. It doesn't seem to happen very much. It's because you're doing a good job Probably. doing those family trees. <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> <laughs> We've got this amazing food in front of us. Could you tell us a little bit about the food that we're about to eat? Yeah, this is called um, Elizabethan lamb, but it's not lamb. It's hogget. Okay. Um, lamb is an animal that's up to a year old. Mm-hmm. Hogget is between a year and two years old, uh, and mutton is over two years old. Okay. Um, and hogget with Hebridean sheep, the lambs are not really big enough to um, do for meat in their first year. Mm-hmm. If you keep them over winter, they go into a sort of store period. They don't put weight on at all over winter. But when right. the grass comes back again in the spring, um, they put weight on. And so by June, July, you've got this fantastic um, hogget. Um, they're called hogget live and dead, actually. <laughs> <laughs> um, but the hogget meat has more flavour because the animal has just eaten that much more. Yeah. For example, the traditional Easter lamb mm-hmm. is um, straight off its mum, and so it tastes of nothing, doesn't it? That's young spring lamb tastes of nothing. I haven't eaten it for so long; I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas hogget just has tons more flavour. Mm. Anyway, I think the Elizabethan element of the um, casserole, stew, yeah. whatever you like to call it, mm-hmm. is because it's got loads of fruit in there. I was going to say, I can see some dried yeah, fruit. Is that apricot? I, I can yeah, see. Yeah, I think um, um, people in that era, like with mincemeat, used to combine fruit and meat yeah. a lot more. So this is basically, it's onions, it's supposed to be celery, but I use celeriac because celeriac's mm-hmm. in season. Mm-hmm. And then it's got apricots, raisins, dates, apple, an orange, a lemon, 
She's got some quince. Um, oh, lovely. I love quince. I love quince too. <laughs> <laughs> and I made it with goose fat instead of oil. And Good. then it's got uh, some port. I've got a recipe that I do sometimes, which is Elizabethan salmon. Oh, really? And that has a lot of the same ingredients. Oh, so right, dried okay. fruit. Um, yeah. And ginger, preserved ginger in syrup and that kind mm. of thing. And mm. It's that really nice. nice. It's, you think it's going to be a bit weird, mm. like meat or fish with fruit, but mm. it's, they knew what they were doing, these folks. Yeah, it's and delicious. there's still an element of it, because we have um, uh, pork with applesauce, uh, mackerel with gooseberries. Of course, yes. Um, but it's, you know, not much, is it? Right, I'm going to have a go at this. Yeah, go for it. Mm. That is very, very delicious. It's... It's quite like it's quite subtly lamby. The the um the gravy, even it's got all those really flavourful things in, it very much tastes very obviously of lamb and mutton, those kind of flavours. It's really tender as well, isn't it? How long did this take to cook? Three hours. Three hours. People kind of worry about cooking these things that take hours. I think they think they stood at their oven stirring for three hours, but it's about, no. what, 10, 10 minutes work? It's, um, 15 minutes work? Brown the meat, brown the onions, put it all together, put it in the oven, and leave it to it. Yeah. I think people are worried about um, how strong things taste. So as you get to hog it then to mutton, it's, it's more... Lammy, I suppose. <laughs> more, more strong, more gamey. I it think is like, definitely more definitely gamey, gamey and it? it's quite um, the Hebridean meat's quite close textured as well. I think you find that when um, if you try some roast lamb or something like that, mm. it's not a coarse grain meat; it's very fine. Mm-hmm. And there's not a lot of fat on a Hebridean. You have a job to get them fat. That puts off quite a few people with lamb because they think, oh, it's all fatty and greasy and mm. all that kind of stuff. But it's not the case, at least for these. No. These ones. No. Lambs are a symbol of Lent and Easter. And it's quite a miserable time, the start of Lent. It's basically winter still. I just wanted to ask you what, what it's like on the farm around that time of year. Is it, how do you keep your spirits up when you're really in amongst the elements? Because I've got no idea about this kind of thing. I live in... Comfy Manchester. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know about keeping spirits up, but you're, I suppose, in inverted commas, you are looking forward to lambing, although it's always a stressful time um, with lack of sleep and worry about the sheep. But once the lambs do come out and are gambling in the fields, it's, I suppose it's the rebirth of the new season, really, which is possibly why... They are related to Easter. And you were saying before, uh, when we were having a little chit-chat, eating our food, uh, about the lambs know when it's time to breed. The sheep do, yeah. They Sorry, the sheep don't yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The ewes don't start cycling coming into season until the daylight hours shorten. So however early you put the ram in, they won't um, come into season until about... Um, uh, October, you get some sheep um, will cycle throughout the year. You can have a couple mm. of crops of lambs from them, but the particularly primitive sheep um, won't come into season until later. I think it's either melatonin. Is it melatonin, yeah. the hormone that's produced, mm-hmm. and that is affected by the daylight hours? Okay, so that's a 
and so that means they are going to lamb around April, which is generally around Easter time, isn't it? Perfect timing. Because that's when the grass is starting to come through so that there's plenty for them to eat, which is the reason that they, they time themselves to, for the lambs to appear at that sort of time with the new spring grass. Because mm. it's a hunger gap for us, mm. of course, yeah. that time of year. Yeah, so what, what do they eat over winter? And maybe at the beginning of Lent, before there's all those nice new grasses growing. Um, anything that's not nailed down, really. <laughs> <laughs> we, of course, feed them hay and concentrates. Um, but in, they would gradually get thinner and thinner in their natural state. And then when the grass started coming, they'd put on the weight, they'd have the lambs. And then everything would take off. Because mm, a big animal, so obviously they'd be pregnant for quite a, a long time. Yeah, Five months. Yeah, it's, if you put the ram in on the fifth of November, bonfire night, yeah. they lamb on April Fool's Day. <laughs> <laughs> That's the rule of thumb. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that. It's 155 <laughs> days, I think. Right. 150. One thing I didn't realise, but became obvious very quickly when I was doing a bit of research, there's a lot of support. Uh, and a big network for people who are breeding these beautiful little Hebridean sheep. Yes, the Hebridean Sheep Society um, is a, a really important part of um, my life, really, with having the sheep. Um, everybody's very friendly, and the society exists not only to promote and keep the breed, but also to educate its members. Well, on the um, Hebridean Sheep Society website, mm-hmm. um, we've got a meat page and there's a map showing um, everybody that you know wants to be listed on there where they are in the country, and so you can contact people through that. Mm-hmm. That's that's how I found out about you. In fact, wasn't indeed. It? <laughs> and do you go to? Farmers markets or supply put, certain shops? Or? Um, I don't do farmers markets because, frankly, I don't have time. Mm. Um, I sell my meat uh, privately by word of mouth, and I do it in. Um, I would sell half a sheep, butchered and ready for the to go in the freezer, labelled. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also supply a restaurant in Stockport where the light gets in, which is a wonderful restaurant. I've been there myself. Unfortunately, at the time, there was no hogger on the menu. <laughs> well, I think um, Sam Buckley, the uh, restaurant owner and chef, he changed his menu on about a six-weekly or a um, bit longer basis. Yeah, it's always changing. Yeah, and yeah. at the moment, they're um, serving my mutton. And, of course, your uh, meat will be going to another esteemed chef. Indeed. <laughs> and I'm very uh, pleased about that I'm too. I'm very glad to be <laughs> Taking a couple of legs. I only eat, I don't eat prime cuts, except once a year. This is going to be my annual yeah. prime cut because oh, I've got a couple of legs, haven't I? I hope so I'm very excited good. to be cooking those. And I've also <laughs> got for you um, some of the um, neck just so that you can make some stock. Oh, or whatever. brilliant. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Bonus. Well, it's almost time for us to wrap up, I think. Right. I think we talked about everything I wanted to talk about. Thank you very much for having us and cooking the Thank you so much food. for your interest. Oh, thank you. Oh, we've been too nice to each other, are we? Thank you. Thank and you. I've got some um, hoggy for oh, you to take away yes. with you. We've got some leg here. That's a full leg? Yeah. So, yeah. So, not, oh, it's not a big animal. Not big, but it's dense. Yeah. 
That's got quite a weight to it. Yeah. Thank you so much, because I know these are precious and there's not many to go around. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm glad they go to somebody who'll appreciate them. <laughs> we hope. <laughs> a huge thank you to Helen and to Vicky too, of course. What a treat it was going up there to meet them and the animals. I didn't want to leave. What was amazing there too was the amount of stuff that could be made from the sheep. The woolen and felt clothing, the sheepskin rugs and the shepherd's crooks. It was all just excellent. Helen also showed me her many trophies and awards, one of which was a prize for the most diverse flock. Usually, judges are looking for uniformity, but for these rare animals, we need as much variation as possible. Of course, as per usual, go to the programme page on the website to find pictures of Helen's flock, plus loads of extra information and links. So, I now had my hoggart meat... And I thought what I should do is roast it very simply, salt and pepper and a very little garlic served with gravy. You have to let these sorts of ingredients sing, so the fewer the ingredients, the better. Less is more, as they say. Well, if I was going to cook a special meal like this, I wondered who should I cook it for? And the first people I thought of were my friends Kate and Pete, who helped me out so much at the very start of this series. We have our hogget leg, which is a... Small, but perfectly formed, I would say. It is, it's beautifully shapely, I would say. Mm-hmm, a well-turned heel, I would say. Uh, it's quite dense, though. It's uh, well-packed in. Yeah, it looks like it, it weighs a little bit, that. How yeah. big, how big do you call the live version a hogget? Well, it's older than a lamb, but younger than a fully-grown mutton sheep. It's a stage that's not usually included, but these sheep are so little, if you kill them as lambs, it'd just be like a chicken leg that we were eating. <laughs> um, and because these aren't available anywhere, uh, it's a rare treat. So I've really kind of gone very basic. It's salt and pepper and a clove of garlic. And that is it. And then, of course, the accompaniment, that is mint sauce. Classic. But I'm going to attempt to um, carve this. I'm one of the world's worst carvers, but I'm going to try and do it. Are you a lamb fan? I am a fan of lamb. I'm a lamb fan too. A lot of people don't like it. I know. I, d- I don't like pork, but I do like. What? I do like lamb. And there's an invert snob- snobbery because I've never had mutton because it's so frowned upon. Mm-hmm. It but does smell very. Why good. isn't mutton considered a dish anymore? It's very annoying because we don't do the same with. Um, with cows, we don't go, oh, it will only eat veal. <laughs> but for some reason, I don't know why, it's happened with sheep. And I've eaten mutton. I had it roasted. It's absolutely delicious. It's, you know, and it's got some proper flavour to it. Because poor old little lamby spring lambkins, you know, the ones that were born this year, they're, if you're having spring lamb, it's those lambs that you're having. You may as well be having like a suckling pig or something. I don't know. I, th- I feel like... Um... Mutton was kind of a thing that my parents sort of mentioned as like a school dinner. Like, oh, it was a bit crap because we got it for school dinner. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of put in that bracket of like everything's grey and mushy and like. Sure. Queen Victoria's favourite food? Well, I mean, that kind of figures, doesn't it? She loved it. She she's, loved a bit, she's a bit of an austere person. It strikes me as maybe with that person a quantity over quality kind of thing. Yeah, but there was no con- there was no connotations, negative connotations back then, and there is now. It's funny how we've developed all these 
sort of different prudishnesses or you know mis mislaid opinions about really nice food it's just crazy really you've made gravy i've made gravy with lamb juices oh. and some chicken stock and some white wine not what you might expect what do you fancy do you want a bit of everything we've got some parsnips got some potatoes we've got a uh, mint sauce are you a mint sauce fan i don't probably not as big as pete to be fair but um in my house because we didn't we only I feel like we only had mint sauce like this fairly late in life but earlier when we you know like the jelly do you remember the jelly I do that was I think a lot sweeter spoonable that's how I remember first being introduced to the idea of like must have been lamb and mint at yeah. Sunday dinner yep shortly before the traditional fight about the washing up which was how every Sunday in my house ended for you thank you okay well that's some dished up for everyone Help to parsnips. And of course, just to say, hey guys, I mean, thanks thanks for helping us out with the podcast at the beginning. I thought it just made sense for, for us to go full circle, come back and say cheers. Thank you, it's been a joy. Oh, it turns out you two are more popular than me anyway, so that's the real reason why I've done it. So no, we're, we're, we're quite far into this now. And, yeah. you know, one of the things that... I, how I explain you to people is that oh. sometimes you say, where did the recipe come from? For me, I just yeah. point to a cookbook. Sure. And with this, when it's you, I point to a year. And that year is normally you know, 1732 or oh, something. Yeah. And tonight's recipe is from Jane Grigson. Yeah. So I'm wondering how, in a sentence, would you describe Jane Grigson's cookbook? I would say she writes very comprehensively rather like a kindly but strict school mistress from the 1920s even though the book was written in the 70s so a bit like a bitch version of Mary Berry no she's much better you know much nicer than I think she was probably much nicer than Mary Berry if you know your food writers if you know Elizabeth David she was kind of the other very famous writer around the time and she was just waspish you'd get told off when you were reading I mean obviously I know Elizabeth David well but let's just pretend for the sake of argument I have never heard of Elizabeth David she was a food writer who wrote an amazing book in the 90 end of the 1940s start of the 1950s about Mediterranean food everyone was still probably being rationed and she basically wrote in a way that was telling everybody off for being so awful about their food taste and how bad we were at cooking she wrote these books, recipes that didn't work, but she was very opinionated and waspish. Jane Grigson was like the nice version of that. She wouldn't be afraid to kind of say, hey guys, we've lost the plot here with this food. But most of the time it was all about kind of nice fluffy memories of her growing up in the very north of England. Yeah, she was great. And she's taught me how to cook. I wouldn't be doing any of this if I hadn't cooked her cookbook, you know, because without realising it, she taught me how to cook a load of British food, not just different techniques different times but of course going back to the recipes go right back to like the early oh, I don't know 14th century in that book so that realising it it's like oh I've well, it's that book cook. that I've seen I've you with that yeah. looks like more like a Dickens novel in terms of, I mean yeah. it really looks like it's got the silver spine it's by Penguin it's, yep. it, it looks like when you buy great or look great expectations on a shelf that's what it looks like that goes back all that way yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I've had a few copies of it now because I've used it so much. There's oh, four, really? There's 450 recipes in that book, I've counted. And I think I've cooked 400 and... Is this 436? 
Something like that. So you you're within reach. Within reach, yeah. But things like hip, primitive lamb species are um, tricky to get hold of. So this is one. This is the one that I've not been able to do. And I've been doing this about twelve years, cooking through this cookbook. And this is one of the real tricky ones. You you've cooked some pretty far out things. Jugged hair, I remember making for you once, we had jugged hair. That was one of the first ones, I think. We were so much younger then, so full of hope. The hoggit, though, to give it to the stew is very, very good. I'm going to taste this. Oh gosh, I've not gone for the mint sauce. Oh, meat, I just didn't even think that was possible. So authentic mint sauce. It's authentic mint sauce, made by my own fair hands. So I buy it in a jar. Yeah, I always used to, and then I made it for myself, and it's one of the things that you can't compare the two, really. They're just not the same thing. So come on, so it's not just mint and um, sauce. It's not just mint and sauce. It's a big bunch of mint chopped up, finely. Then five tablespoons of boiling water as soon as the kettle has boiled. That is very important, Peter. Oh, so not like most teas. Not like most teas. And then it's four teaspoons of sugar, four teaspoons of vinegar of your choice I went for cider mm. that's it sugar, so it's extremely the sugar easy. surprised me there yeah it's about a tablespoon a tablespoon of sugar I would say that's put me off myself why <laughs> I don't know, I guess it's like you don't imagine squatting syrup on lamb you'd feel like a heinous individual no but if you didn't have anything sweet without vinegar it'd be so harsh it's like a weird Slurry, isn't it? The stuff that you get in a jar. I used to yeah, love it. Yeah, I, I mean, it was. I probably still do love it, actually. In France, they think we're absolutely nuts for having mint sauce with lamb. They think it's absolutely bloody hilarious and that we're idiots. So I guess. What do you think about that? <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess what I'm thinking is that mint on lamb also comes into my life in kebab. Form, you know, yeah. and it's a Middle, so, East, Middle so, Eastern. Yeah, well, now I'm wondering about everything. Is it Middle East? Yeah, I mean, this probably comes from the Middle yeah. East. It wouldn't surprise me. Sugar did. I mean, mint didn't. But yeah, it's probably all, you know, from the same root. Well, what do they have with lamb that makes them think that this is crazy? Oh, I don't know. <laughs> Frogs. <laughs> I think I try to think of more offensive stereotypes. <laughs> Snails and frogs is what I have. <laughs> yeah. No, I don't know. <clears throat> the other one is red currant jelly. But um, I go mint sauce over red currant jelly any time. Yeah. The, the hoggit, it should be said, the hoggit has been a triumph. It's absolutely delicious, isn't yeah. it? And I think everyone should eat this kind of stuff and not be going to certain supermarkets and just buying cubes of meat. We all eat too much meat anyway. I'd much rather have something that's had a pretty good life that lives very similar to um, a wild sheep would. Oh, thanks, Kane Pete. I still think about that delicious hoggit. I'm very pleased I've got another leg to roast. Okay, it might be the final episode of the series, but guys, don't be a stranger. If you've got any comments, questions, or queries, please contact me on Twitter at Neil Buttery, Instagram, Doctor, that's DR underscore Neil underscore Buttery, or email me at Neil at BritishFoodHistory.com. Also, visit my website, britishfoodhistory.com, and click on the Lent podcast tab. 
There you will find photos, links and recipes for all of the other episodes in this series, including recipes for roast hoggett and pax cakes, of course. Well, that's it. It's time to sign off. What a great time I've had making this podcast. A massive thanks to everyone who's got involved. Kate and Pete, of course, Helen and Vicky, and the people at Levensew Market from today's episode, but also David Walker, Bishop of Manchester, Professor Matthew Cobb, Brenda Smith of Bud, Isabel Cass of Dormouse Chocolates, and the staff at the John Rylands Library. Also, a massive thank you has to go to Bina Katani and Sonda Radio, who've been, well, for starters, very patient, but also fun to work with. But the biggest thanks, plus a big hug and a great big smacker, goes to you for listening. I've had such good feedback from all of you and the listenership is steadily growing, so there's a good chance I'm going to be back. Have a great Easter and mind how you go. The producer for this series is Bina Katani and it's a Sonder Radio production. Music